All right, welcome to Objection to the Forum. This is Justin Humphreys. Uh, this week I've got a special guest. It's Ashley Edwards. Welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ashley and and I used to work together. Uh, I worked for him back in 2006 uh, at, a, at an old law firm, and so I'm, it's glad to catch up again. Uh, Ashley's practice is, is primarily, I guess, what I would say in two areas, uh, workers' compensation and mediation. Is, is there anything else I'm missing that you've been up to recently? That's most of what we do. Um, we also do some arbitrations, um, but most of my, my caseload is in workers' comp. Um, and then about half of the time I spend mediating. And what's the the firm name? It's Prior Croner and Edwards. Uh, we handle workers' compensation cases under the workers' compensation law firm. Okay, and I've, I'm familiar with ADR of NC. Is that is that another trade name of that? Pro- is we do business uh, as Alternative Dispute Resolution of North Carolina, and um, I have two partners who mediate almost full time. Understood. Well, let's let's start with with workers' compensation. That's that's where I'd like to begin, and I, I know it's a topic that a lot of people uh, are interested in. And I think just kind of where I'd like to start is maybe a broad picture of what types of claims are compensable under the Workers' Comp Act. Sure. Um, And big misconception for a lot of people are if you get hurt at work, you think you're covered under workers' comp. And every state has their own system of laws. They're all written by the legislature, and every state is a little bit different. But the main uh, reasons to get workers' compensation are for accidents and it has to be something out of the ordinary that happens at work. Um, probably 80% of the claims in North Carolina are from accident claims. The rest of the claims would be from what's called occupational disease claims, and those would include also repetitive use claims like carpal tunnel um, syndrome and other repetitive use type injuries. Um, but it, the problem with a lot of claims in North Carolina are people get hurt and they don't understand that an accident has a different meaning under the law than what we would normally say. I imagine those types of claims get difficult, kind of the repetitive use claim. So what I think of is the person that's that's heavy lifting is part of the, the job description. Right. And repetitive use really is – has to be very repetitive in nature. Uh, that's why I use carpal tunnel as an example. That has been um, a type of occupational disease that's been proven by ergonomic studies – that can be caused from excessive typing. Um, if you do the same repetitive motions over and over, it can cause that syndrome. Just lifting, usually those jobs, unless you're doing it continually over and over, uh, aren't going to be considered considered uh, occupational disease cases. It's interesting that you bring up uh, typing as an example because I don't think many people would, would consider a desk job being something with potential to, to have a work-related injury. Right, and and there's a lot of accidents that happen with desk jobs. You'd be surprised how many people trip over cords. A lot of people are working from home these days with COVID and have injuries at home that could be considered workers' compensation claims. Uh, accidents happen when they're if they're engaged in their employment, they could be covered under workers' comp. So that's because I know that there's I, I've kind of dabbled in workers' comp a little bit before, and I know there's got to be a, a causal link between the job and the injury. But I guess what you're saying, as I understand it, is if there's an accident at work, then that would be compensable um, regardless of how that activity that caused the accident relates to your job? Well, it has to be arising out of the employment. So uh, let's use an example of uh, someone who is on their lunch break, and they're going to run some errands, and during that lunch break, uh, their employer asked them to go by the post office and pick up stamps. And while they're on their way to the post office, they get in a car accident. That would be considered workers' compensation because that accident is in the course of their employment furthering their uh, employer's business by going to, to do a task that they assign them. However, if during that lunch break they're doing personal errands and they're going to the dry cleaner and the bank for themselves and they get in the same auto accident, that wouldn't be covered under workers' comp. What about if you've got employees doing something at the, at the job that, that isn't a work function but they are at work? There can be some degrees of variance there, and it's very fact-specific. It uh, depends on how far outside the work function it is. If there is uh, two employees and they are roughhousing um, and having in good spirit, you know, just kind of joking around, that has nothing to do with the work, and one of them were to slip and fall in that process. It could be covered under workers' compensation. However, if they are doing something totally outside the scope of their employment, then it probably will be denied in that case, uh, probably wouldn't be compensable. Because that's what made me think of is, is 
I used to work in the food and beverage industry for a long time, and I remember a situation where I had a, a coworker that was injured kind of in a horseplay situation, kind of like what you're describing. It was that old joke where people would kind of like stick their knee in the back of your kneecap, and uh, and this happened, and, and somebody fell and hurt themselves pretty seriously. And I don't recall, you know, I was probably college days. I don't know if her claim was covered or what ended up happening of it, but I was kind of thinking about those types of situations. It could be that in that situation, if someone came up behind someone and, and tripped them trying to be funny in some manner and, and caused their injury, that's not something that person would have anticipated. So they probably would be covered under workers' comp. However, the person that was doing the tripping if they cause their own injury, that may be outside the scope of employment. And that makes sense, I guess, from the perspective of your coworker that injured you was the work-related hazard. You know, it wasn't like what you were doing as far as if, if you if, if the injured party is the one kind of taking action that's not furthering their employment. Yeah, it has to be something that is not in the regular um, course and scope to be an accident, but it can't be something so far outside the employment that it has nothing to do with um, the scope of their employment. Do you see this being a, a heavily litigated area as far as when people are kind of dealing with the threshold issue of is this even a comp case? Um, it's not one of the major issues that we see. Uh, the course and scope usually has to do with whether they're in the function of their employment at the time, and that can usually be um, found out through investigating the claim and what their employment was and what the details of that that were. Uh, accident happened. One of the terms you hear a lot is frolic and detour. And I think that's kind of a when, when you're talking about whether the act applies or not, you're looking at in, in the travel context, were they doing work related functions or were they doing um, right. their, their own business? Right. And then you come into also what's called the salesman exception, because normally you're not covered going or coming to work. Like if you're driving to a regular office that you would normally go to every day, you're not covered on the way to the work or on the way home. However, if you're having to go on overnight trips um, for the course of your employment, you may be covered during all aspects of that trip. But, again, it depends on what you're doing at the time. Sure. And, you know, I think when you're looking at these traveling things, what we had uh, we, we had Sam on last week, Sam McRae, and he was talking about being adequately insured. So I don't know what you think if you're if you're doing a lot of work-related travel – how does that affect your, your UI? Are you aware of how that affects your UIM or what type of insurance you should have? Or, or can, you rela- can you rely upon uh, your employer's insurance in those situations? I always advise people to make sure they're insured adequately because don't uh, rely on other people doing that for you. Uh, your employer is supposed to have workers' comp if you have more than three employees. That doesn't mean that those policies are always paid on time or that the policy could be in effect. Uh, you may think you are covered for an act and then you find out that someone else didn't make a premium payment and there's no coverage. So I would always encourage people if you're going to do any type of traveling, especially by car, that you talk with your insurance agent and make sure you have covered yourself adequately. So going back to this frolic and detour, so I think it's – it's I understand that you you're not – if you get in an accident on your way to work, that's not a workers' comp case. But then if you're doing a work errand in the, the middle of your work day, then that probably would be a, work, a workers' compensation case. Right. If it's an errand for the employment and it furthers the employer's interest, then it can be covered under workers' compensation. And I, and I guess kind of the, the gray area can be when, when things get blended a little bit. Right. It could be if you're doing a list of tasks during, like I said, during a lunch break, and it, it could be determined based on whether you're doing it for yourself or for your employer. Yeah. One of the things you brought up earlier that I thought was interesting is you were talking about um, a workers' compensation claim at home um, with a lot of people dealing with the, the, the COVID um, work-at-home environment. How, how does that arise? A lot of people are working from home. My wife is actually working from home now, um, and a lot of um, our staff in our office are working remotely at different times. So, again, it comes down to uh, what are you doing at the time? What is the cause of the accident? I tell people, you know, if you're – set up a desk at home and you're working remotely now and you trip over your work computer trying to answer the phone for your employer, that's probably workers' compensation because you're furthering your employment. However, if you're taking a smoke break and you're in your backyard playing with your dog, you're probably not going to be covered. Yeah. What about COVID itself? Um, do you think it's – and I guess this would fall in kind of the occupational hazard category of cases you were talking about. If you believe you were exposed 
um, to COVID at your office um, or, you know, wherever you work, restaurant or, um, or construction site, whatever it might be, um, can you bring a claim, a workers' compensation claim for contracting COVID? Yeah, COVID would be considered as an occupational disease as other diseases. And you, there's a two-pronged test for occupational disease claims. One is were you at an increased risk over the general population of contracting the disease because of your employment? Um, during a pandemic when the virus is widespread, that may be more difficult to prove. Um, if you're a frontline worker, a nurse, or a doctor, and you're around COVID patients all the time, that may be an easier bar to meet. Uh, the second prong of that test is expert testimony saying that the disease was caused by the employment. So you'd have to have expert, a doctor, basically say they believe more likely than not that you contracted COVID from your employment. Well, I believe you just answered the question with the end, with the end of what you just said, because I was going to ask, is it, is it kind of a but-for standard of, of I, had I not gone to work, I wouldn't have got COVID, or is it a – more of a, it's it's more probable than not that I that I got COVID at work. It is more probable than not, but it is a expert testimony that has to be given on those issues. When you're getting into these occupational health claims, what what types of of really disease or or uh, illnesses do you typically find that are associated with your job? It depends on the job. There's there's a wide array. I've seen anything from uh, asbestosis claims. You've seen uh, those advertised for on TV also. But basically, uh, if the cancer comes from your employment and you have expert testimony saying that you're at an increased risk and that it was causally related to your employment, then you could be covered. Uh, Most occupational disease claims that I've seen, and as a mediator, I only see contested claims usually, are litigated because of those issues, because they are so fact-specific and have need expert testimony. And I imagine as the employer, you're not going to want to open the door to that, you know, where it's where it's you're kind of conceding that 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 my employees are at, are at increased risk over the general public of getting this particular illness. If you have one claim and more people have the same problems, it's going to open the door usually for those claims to be brought forward. Do you have any experience with any of those? Like I always think of James Sokolov is what I always see when I when I when I see the you know the asbestosis or or some of those um, kind of mass tort claims for occupational disease. Do you have any experience with with any of those? I, I don't personally because those are done uh, like you said as a tort claim outside the workers' compensation system. Uh, workers' comp is done through the North Carolina Industrial Commission, um, and they are all administrative claims done under uh, deputy commissioner rulings, so it's not a jury trial. And those tort, mass tort claims are basically, um, I believe, class action suits that you see advertised for on TV that they're asking you to become members of. So you can't do class action within the, the workers' comp context? Not for a workers' compensation claim. Each claim is litigated independently. I got you. Um, so with the – and I guess with the, the nature of the injuries, it could be anything for – um, you know, with COVID in particular, um, you're probably looking at, you know, the, the medical bills, I guess, if there are any, or or your lost wages at work. Right. Any workers' compensation claim would uh, potentially have the same uh, benefits, and those would be full payment of your medical bills. Uh, however, if the claim is accepted, your employer gets to direct the medical care, so they get to direct you to what doctors to go to. Um, and then what's called temporary total disability benefits, which are lost wages, and that is two-thirds of what you would normally make at the job if you could work um, during the period that you're disabled from the employment. Unfortunately, there's no pain and suffering in workers' compensation. When we come back, I'm going to go take our first break. When we come back, I want to talk about kind of what's recoverable in workers' compensation and kind of give uh, the audience an idea of how you value a workers' compensation case um, from a uh, claimant's perspective. All right, sounds good. We're walking through the shadow of occupational injury with with Ashley Edwards today. And so uh, kind of where we left off was really talking about what is compensable in a workers' compensation claim. So kind of I think where where I'd like to begin is is what was is where we left off what you were kind of outlining is is the 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 damages available to a claimant in a workers' compensation claim. Sure. Yeah, and where I left off basically was that there's no pain and suffering in workers' comp and I, I told people it's a 
it's a system that's written by the legislature. It gets changed uh, over time and has evolved over the last hundred years. But basically, you get medical bills paid if the claim is compensable. And if we can stop right there, I want to get into like kind of maybe go into each of the categories because like with with medical bills, it's my understanding there's a chart for medical bill as far as what 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 medical providers can bill a workers' compensation provider. Correct. There's a uh, what's called the medical fee schedule. And that is uh, statewide in North Carolina what physicians can charge based on the coding. So for each procedure, uh, whether you have it done in Charlotte or Wilmington or uh, any other town, it would be the same amount for that doctor. Because of that, there's been some problem with getting certain specialties to actually take workers' compensation. Well, that's exactly – that was going to be my follow-up is because I guess if, if you've got the legislature is setting um, the, the rates for the medical providers, you know – you. You'd think there, there could become some difficulty if the provider doesn't want to perform the services. And there's nothing that says they have to. Uh, the, it's voluntary if they want to accept workers' compensation um, insurance. And then the provider would get a code bill to the insurance company. That would be processed. So, And, and I'm, I'm not going to give any specifics on yeah. any of the coding, but basically let's say a bill was $100 for a office visit for an orthopedic and – you sent that to the insurance company, and the fee schedule said, "Well, you can only charge sixty. Then that doctor has to accept the sixty dollars, cannot bill the employee for the difference, and has to write off basically the rest." So that is the full amount of the bill that the provider can charge. Can the um, can the injured employee pay the the provider the provider's ask and then claim that as an expense? No, um, that is something that happens a lot of times in denied cases. Sometimes. You know, you'll make a workers' compensation claim, and the insurance company will take your statement and say, well, we don't think you had an accident. Uh, it doesn't meet the definition. Or we don't believe you're credible. We don't believe this happened at all, and they deny your case. And so what do you do at that point? A lot of times they'll contact an attorney and file what's called a request for hearing, but that litigation can take months, if not years sometimes, to determine if there's going to be any uh, compensable benefits. So in the meantime, if you don't have health insurance – the only way to get health care would be to run up medical bills, and sometimes the doctors will allow that. A lot of times they won't see patients if there's not going to be payment, so they don't get the care. But if they do make a full payment to the doctor and the claim is later deemed compensable, then the doctor would have to bill the insurance company and then refund the difference to the employee. And that's a a difficult process to get done. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the doctors don't appreciate that either when they think they're getting they're getting full rate and then and then it's hey, get. and that's why a lot of these cases are settled at some point. And we'll talk about mediation. I know what I do in mediation, but a lot of times that comes down to that becomes part of a settlement. Gotcha. So all right, so we've got the the rates that are established. That's what you can get for your medical bills. Um, what about your lost wages? Lost wages. Uh, they look at the day you get hurt, and then they look at 52 weeks prior to that date. And if you haven't worked for a full year prior to your injury, they look at the number of weeks you worked and look at your gross wages and say, how much did you average a week? It's called your average weekly wage. Uh, very, yeah, it's creative. very creative title. Yeah. Um, then you take two-thirds of that amount, and that's called your compensation rate. The reason it's two-thirds is, is – and I'm not here to give any tax advice, but currently workers' comp benefits aren't taxed. So – the compensation rate is what the workers' compensation carrier would pay on a weekly basis if you can't work because of the injury. I see. So it's not it's not necessarily because when, when you're looking at it, taking a third haircut on your on your income seems like a pretty bad situation for the worker. But I guess if you're not having to pay withholding or, or anything like that, it's it's not as bad. Right. It's uh, the no deductions taken. It's not subject to Medicare, Social Security, uh, federal or state tax. So and and how long can you get your your uh, lost wages if you're unable to, to continue carrying on with your job? Uh, there was a change in the law in 2011 when uh, tort reform went through in North Carolina, and they changed the Workers' Compensation Act. It used to be an employee potentially could get paid for life. Uh, the legislature at that point decided to cap benefits at 500 weeks from the date of first disability. So there is a provision in the law that you can apply for extended benefits past the 500 weeks, but those – Benefits can't be asked for until 450 weeks have passed. So those cases, through the law changed in 2011, so those cases are just coming due now to be heard for extended benefits. So we're really trying to see 
what those cases will look like and what cases will be approved for longer benefits. Yeah, I imagine that that makes things difficult when you're trying to settle a case where you're saying, well, I know I'm going to be eligible for extended benefits 10 years later, or you might say that, or that's how you would posture the case, but nobody really knows. It, it depends on your age, too. Um, if if you've got a 25-year-old who, and unfortunately this is a true case, a 25-year-old falls out of a tree and is a quadriplegic, I don't think anyone's going to argue that they're not going to be disabled in 500 weeks. They're understanding that you know if you're paralyzed, you're going to be probably disabled for the rest of your life. So those cases are actually easier to negotiate because everyone kind of agrees. The harder ones are, I hurt my back and I can't lift over 50 pounds now and my job used to require that. I don't know how long it's going to take for me to find work and I'm 40 years old and you know, am I going to go past the 500 weeks? The insurance companies are already going to say no. We don't think so. We think you're going to find a job and and you just don't know. So a profession that that a lot of people might not know about that's out there is uh, vocational rehab experts. You know, the voc rehab, and a lot of times, you know, they're they're kind of loaded up on one side or the other. They're either saying uh, this person will never be able to work again, or they're saying the person could be working right now. But it's kind of interesting. You know, what, what I remember about voc rehab experts, I had a a, a, a case with a, a very serious injury. And the expert said, well, I've, I've looked at the, the uh, job listings in this area, and I believe that your, your client could, could work at, at Bojangles. Being a, a biscuit maker was the, was the actual position. I guess that's you – know, I know Bojangles sells a lot of biscuits, but that was the, seri- that was the, in the serious position. And I just know from working in restaurants, thing, this, this person can't work a restaurant job. They said, oh, no, well, all the, the, all the coworkers will do all the lifting. They just need to to work the mixer and make biscuits, and I said, "This is this is crazy," but you know, it, it's one you wonder like, where do you come up with this stuff? But it is true that if if there's a lot of job, there's a lot of of, of jobs that don't require much physical exertion. Yeah, and again, it depends on your background. Um, sometimes vocational rehabilitation will come and play the uh, workers' compensation carriers, especially if they're paying ongoing weekly benefits. They want to stop that benefit if possible because it's costing them on a weekly basis. So one way to do that is can you return this person to work? And there's a hierarchy of return to work. One is can you return to your old job? That's the first question. If the job is available and you can do your old job, then they really don't owe you any weekly benefits because you can work your old position. If you can't do that, then the second question is, is there another job with the same employer that you could do based on your physical condition? And sometimes there are and sometimes they're not. Depends on the employer, depends on the jobs available. Then a lot of times what will happen is the employer will say, well, I don't have jobs available within those restrictions. You know, he can't lift over 40 pounds. Everything we have here is over 40 pounds. We can't use him anymore, unfortunately. And then Voc Rehab would come in with a job search with a new employer and try to find jobs within those restrictions. The, the requirement of the employee is you got to cooperate. Now, what about the employer? Like, I know one of the the issues that's litigated um, fairly frequently is is make work. Yeah, and that's become an interesting issue in uh, workers' comp lately because there's two periods of time. One is when you're in what's called your healing period. So while you're treating for the injury, an employer can actually make up a job for you. Uh, If your normal job is to deliver refrigerators and you've hurt your back and you can't do that, but they've got a you know, a table with a, a phone, and they say, well, you can sit in the warehouse and answer the phone and take messages for anybody who calls. It's not a real job we usually have, but you can do that while you're, you know, healing from this. They can do that, and as long as they want to pay you your wages and make up a job for you, you can do that. But once you reach what's called maximum medical improvement and the doctors are basically done with you and said, we can't do anymore, you're going to have to live with these restrictions forever, then it has to be a real job in the marketplace because the fear is that employer – to get rid of the job in the warehouse answering the yeah. phone, and you can't find that job anywhere else in the country. It doesn't exist. So it has to be a real job that you can get competitive. Yeah, because it's employment at will. So if they say, oh, well, there's no there's no permanent lost wages because we're, we're going to keep them at the, 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 phone, uh, the, the phone job, and then the, the case gets clinched or the case gets dismissed and the file closed on your comp claim, and then you're terminated. And unfortunately, that has happened to a lot of people. And I guess once your 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 case is terminated, there's really is there a is there a tort recourse for that situation, or do you go reopen your comp file? No, it, when, it depends on what your status of your comp file is. Um, you talked about clinching a case, and a clincher is uh, 
what we use as a term for a full and final settlement of a workers' compensation case. So if you clincher the case, you are basically settling all future benefits. So those are very hard to reopen. Um, if you have an employment issue um, with accommodation, you may have an employment claim if they were to get rid of you based on the accommodation factors under the uh, ADA. Gotcha. So we've got lost wages, um, permanent and temporary, and then we've got medical bills. Um, what else is available to an injured uh, employee at work? There's also, um, like I said, no pain and suffering, but there is what's called permanent uh, partial disability payments. And those are basically payments in lieu of pain and suffering for permanent injuries for employees that can return to work. So let's say you know, your refrigerator delivery man uh, gets better and he can start delivering again, but he had to have a surgery to his back. And because of that surgery, the doctor says he has a 5% disability to his back now. There's a provision under the law for him to get a payment for that disability. And the calculation is based on the legislature saying each body part is worth so many weeks of compensation. And then you multiply those number of weeks times the percentage, and those are the number of weeks that he would get in lieu of pain and suffering. Yeah, and I think that's something that that some people don't realize about workers' compensation that I that I w- always felt was just kind of uh, you know almost cold blooded when you look at it. Was I had a, a client that uh, was a, a meter reader that uh, got a- attacked by a dog and had some um, you know lost some fingers permanently, and you go on there and look. And there's a chart, and that was one of the issues that was in dispute was, well, how many phalanges were – because there was – part of the finger wasn't completely removed. And so you're you're arguing over stuff like that, and it's just kind of – you know, when you look at it, well, three fingers would be worth 10,000, but two are worth five. And you're looking at it like, this is terrible. Yeah, and it, it is – it can be very cold sometimes. Um, if, if the person's able to work, though, that's their only avenue for permanent disability. And – I don't know how they came up with the number of weeks for each body part. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but like the arm is worth 240 weeks, but a leg is worth only 200 weeks. When was the last time they updated that? Uh, it's been a long time since they updated I think that there chart. needs to be a, like a cola increase or something for the chart because, and, I mean, I, you know, lose a couple fingers and that's, that's 5K. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Well, it depends on your wages. So someone who literally has the same injury, let's say they lose a little finger, but they can continue to work. Um, someone who made twice as much money as them because their average weekly wage is twice as much, their disability then is worth twice as much. Gotcha. Yeah, and that makes sense. Like you know, the the surgeon, you know, maybe that that needs his hands for, you know, to work, or or they, the, you know, the surgeon, the, the the surgeons have, I guess, one of the more sensitive job titles because anything can throw them off if it's if it's hands or if you're required to take medication that disqualifies you from working in that profession. Yeah, and, and the permanent partial disability really is just a math calculation. It doesn't matter if you're a surgeon or a piece of delivery guy. You're going to get the same rating based on that doctor's opinion. It just depends on your wages as to what it's worth. So we got the, the, the partial permanent disability. Uh, we've got lost wages, and we've got medical bills. Is there anything else that's compensable under the Workers' Compensation Act? Uh, you're entitled to mileage if you have to uh, go over 10 miles each way to a doctor's visit or for vocational rehabilitation or for therapies. Um, so there can be some reimbursement for expenses on that. It depends on uh, the injury also. You may have some things outside of medical care like home health care. If someone has a surgery and they have no one to take care of them at home, you may need a nurse to come take care of you at home to bathe you and dress you and those type of things while you're recovering. So there can be some external um, benefits uh, outside of actual medical care. Are, are life care plans utilized much in workers' compensation? Not as much as they used to be. Uh, those are usually for catastrophic injuries. And what a life care plan is is basically a forecast of what future medical costs you're going to have. Um, because when you're dealing with uh, catastrophic injuries, a lot of times you're going to have to look at coordinating benefits with Social Security Disability and Medicare, and there can be uh, usually an allocation for what's called a Medicare set-aside because the federal government doesn't want you closing your workers' compensation claim if you're on Medicare and then billing them for all your future medical costs. So you'd have to do a set-aside out of your settlement to uh, pay those future medical costs. Understood. Well, um 
We will uh, we'll take our next break now. When we come back, I want to talk about how these claims end up resolving, and that'll I think that'll segue pretty well into the mediation discussion because I guess probably more times than not, that's where you see these things uh, end up uh, resolving or settling. Objection to the form. Uh, we were just wrapping up the discussion of valuation of your personal injury, or your I'm sorry, your workers' compensation claim, uh, which we're segueing into mediation, which I think. Uh, a lot of people that haven't dealt with the litigation process, be it civil or workers' compensation, um, are probably un- unfamiliar with the mediation process. Can you tell everybody a little bit about how that works? Sure. Uh, mediation is basically just a settlement conference. Um, they found uh, through test programs in the state over 20 years ago that if you can get the parties together at one time at one place focused on this one case – through the help of a mediator who is a neutral, basically not on one side or the other, but help helping with the discussion. Most of the time, the parties can work out their own agreement. And it's been very successful. It, that program expanded in North Carolina to all uh, 100 counties. Um, so now every civil case, uh, superior court case needs to be litiga- or that's going to be litigated has to be mediated before it can go uh, to the litigation process. Every workers' compensation case, uh, most divorce cases. Um, end up being mediated. And with our practice, I have uh, uh, Frank Pryor and Sherman Kreiner, who are my law partners, and they mediate almost exclusively. Um, I mediate about 50% of the time. Uh, we settle probably 75 to 80% of those cases. Are the majority of your mediations civil litigation or workers' compensation? It's a split. We do both. Um, we handle uh, a lot of civil um, superior court mediations, uh, some at the federal level, some mostly at the state level a lot of workers' compensation cases, and we've also, the three of us, been appointed to be what are called disaster mediators for the Department of Insurance. Uh, We've had quite a few hurricanes, as the weather outside is showing us today. Um, But in your homeowner's policy, if you dispute a homeowner's claim, you can file for mediation through that program. It's free to the homeowner, and uh, usually one of the three of us will mediate the case. And That's good information for everybody to know because I I personally ran into that a lot during – uh, Hurricane Florence, a lot of people that got insurance claims denied for what, what I felt like were pretty uh, specious reasons. I mean, it was, you know, people with brand new roofs and the insurance company would get an engineer out there and say, oh, well, your house was damaged because your roof wasn't installed per the manufacturer's specifications, not because of the hurricane and, and things like that. And, and, and because of the number of claims, the Department of Insurance implemented that um, program. And it's been, been very uh, successful. We've mediated hundreds of those claims just here in uh, southeast North Carolina, and most of them have ended up settling with uh, some more payment or at least um, some acknowledgement of those damages to the homeowner. Do you find that there you, – you mentioned earlier, I think you said 75 to 80 percent of cases settle at mediation. Um, do you find that more of the workers' compensation cases settle than the, than the superior civil court – or the civil superior cases, or is it about the same? In our experience, it's probably about the same rate. Uh, most cases, the parties come to mediation hoping to settle their case, I think. Both sides normally, nobody wants to go to court and litigate a case that's going to be very expensive, and then the outcome is unknown for both sides. You know, If you go to court, a judge or a jury is going to decide your fate, and one side's not going to be very happy. At mediation, the parties can reach an agreement that both sides may be aren't ecstatic about, but they can live with, and that gives them some closure and finality, and they've been a part of that process. Well, I've always thought that that pain and suffering is what makes your civil litigation matters difficult, and that that's really kind of the rub is is what are we – how are we going to value the, the, the pain and suffering? Because you've got – you know, medical bills are easy to count – you know, I guess you can you can get into disputes over future medical bills and that sort of thing, but but that that's really the underlying uh, issue to resolve. And in, in personal injury litigation is what what are we going to compensate somebody for for going through this experience? Uh, you know, in the in the workers' compensation field, it's a little more formulaic, but I guess where you get your disputes is over. Well, how are we going to? What's the input? You know, can the person are they getting? 500 weeks or, or yeah and i tell people in mediation when we start a mediation and i'm the mediator i say if we had a crystal ball and could look into the future we could calculate almost to the penny what your case is worth because in workers comp you can calculate those damages but because we can't do that the unknown is what's going to happen in the future it can be compromised from both sides and i imagine you know 
you'd seen I've seen some attorneys kind of take the tactic of with the workers' compensation claim of just saying, well, you know, look, I'm just either I'm just going to ask for more than what the formulas give, or you know, it could be either through some, well, we we've got future meds, or or we've got, um, or maybe like what you were saying, we're going to get our extension of um, temporary total disability or something like that. And say, well, if you don't want to pay it, then just keep me, just keep my client on. It could be if it's an accepted case, then no one can make the claimant settle the case and no one can make the insurance company pay a lump sum. You can't even go to court and workers' comp and ask for a lump sum. It's The law is written in a way where you're paid weekly and all a judge can award is – or a deputy commissioner who are the judges in those cases can award our weekly ongoing benefits. So the question is how long do those go on? And that's when voc rehab, like we talked about earlier, may come into play to say, well, we think we can find them a job within six months or a year and – and some of those things can be compromised. From your experience as a mediator, what do you think is the, the stronger leverage ploy? Or, or is it the injured claimant that wants to just wrap it up and get their lump sum check? Um, is it you know the, the allure of getting your, your, your check? Or is it with the employers, the employees saying, look, you're going to be – dealing with this forever and every time I go to the, you know, you're going to be paying my my doctor's bills every time I go and this thing's never going to end. It's different for every case. Um, everyone has their own motivation for wanting to settle a case. Some people just cannot stand the stress of worrying about if their workers' compensation check is going to come next week or if they're going to be able to cut off their benefits because they didn't cooperate in some manner, didn't go to the doctor's visit or didn't go to a voc rehab meeting and they're trying to stop their benefits. Some people just need the closure of the case for their peace of mind. And and some don't mind the contentiousness. Some dwell on it. They they actually enjoy it, I think, to some degree. From what I recall of uh, the personal injury litigation and kind of still what, what I experience now, you'll have certain insurance carriers uh, are more litigious or contentious than others. Is that kind of the same with, with workers' compensation where some are more interested in just closing the file and getting the case settled or, or clinched um, where others want to litigate whether each each treatment was necessary or, or related to a, a work incident? There's there's some of that. It depends on the carrier. depends on the defense attorney. Um, everyone has their own temperament and different ways of dealing with things. It also has to do with um, you know the bottom line. I used to be an insurance adjuster before I went to law school. Oh, no way. For a couple of years, and my boss, when I was training, told me um, a closed file is a good file because it never gets more expensive. Yeah, that's that's true. And yeah, you know, it's one of the things I think is interesting is you know, you'll be, you know, kind of from you'll be interested or you'll be representing an injured party, um, be it workers' compensation or civil litigation, and you're dealing with an insurance company attorney more times than not. And so sometimes you know you'll talk to the other attorney and and they'll say. You know, yeah, I'd really like to get this one resolved, but my adjusters really dug their heels in on this one. To what extent does that does that really happen? Where uh, where the where at least when you were in the insurance adjusting world, did you ever say, "No, nah, we're not paying this guy"? Let's things can become personal sometimes because before attorneys are involved, a lot of times it's the insurance adjuster and the claimant that are talking, and if that relationship is good, sometimes that'll make the negotiation a lot easier later on. But if they've started on a bad footing. It could make it contentious, and there may be some, uh, you know, non-cooperative parties at the end. Yeah, I learned my lesson about that when I first started my practice. You know, when when I was working at the firm where we used to to, to work, uh, I was mainly doing insurance defense, and so I um, started taking plaintiffs' cases. And I was about a year into it, and uh, one of my first uh, personal injury cases told me like, "Oh, this this will be an easy one." You know, I've been handling mostly for myself, so I think I've got it pretty much resolved. I just need you to get it. You know, I just need them to know I've got attorney backing or, you know, then that'll, that'll push it over the top. And, you know, sure thing. I wrote the letter, made the call and, you know, I got, I already told him what I was paying. I'm not, you know, I'm not giving you anything extra. I don't know why you, you've wasted your time contacting me. And you, I guess it's kind of that dynamic where you're saying where the, 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 my client got sideways with the adjuster kind of in that negotiation process. And, and that can happen. It, the good thing is a lot of times claims sometimes get transferred to new adjusters. And um, once you get fresh eyes on things and the personal animosity is not there, then a lot of times if you can look at things objectively, both sides can come to an agreement. You, you mentioned it kind of sometimes it depends on the insurance companies and the and the claimants, and then other times it can kind of depend on the attorneys involved. Are there some uh, 
attorneys that you, you know were you like you're sitting down you, you sit down with the mediation like uh oh it's gonna be it's gonna be one of those kind of days. I'm on the radio, so I have to be very careful here. Um, I work with. The good thing is in my practice and in the mediations I do, and I've done probably over 2,500 mediations as a mediator and an attorney, um, I would say 99% are very professional, easy to work with, um, who are just there doing their job. There is maybe 1% that take everything personally and it, they act like every dollar is their dollar and everyone's trying to cheat them. And those are the difficult ones that to deal when, with. When you and, – and I agree with you. I mean, you know, Especially in this area, um, the, the majority of the people we deal with are, are uh, professional and uh, do a good job for their clients, and you don't have anything to worry about. Um, but, you know, there's some people that, that aren't. And so do you have kind of strategies for how you're going to deal with somebody like that, or do you just kind of go on about your business as if it was a, a rational, normal <laughs> attorney? There are certain uh, attorneys and adjusters and certain uh, people that I work with on a regular basis that I know they respond better to um, certain avenues. So with one attorney I know very well, uh, he has a reputation of being difficult at times, but he loves Carolina sports. And if you can get him talking about Carolina sports, <laughs> he'll, his mood will change. And at that point, um, then you can usually uh, talk about the case and, and he's very rational and, He's very professional. Well, that's that's a um, uh, that, that I think that that makes sense. You know, it's it's kind of I guess everybody's got their things that calm them down. I guess you know it's easy to get dialed in and and kind of uh, hyper focused on something. So I guess that's a that's a something they don't teach in mediator class. Uh, they teach you the basics in mediator class. We take a forty hour certification course, but uh, most like most anything, you learn on the job. So th- this was one thing I. I do civil superior court mediations. And one of the things that I really took away from that class was how you're not supposed to, as a mediator, um, sway the outcome maybe, or and I mean, not sway the outcome is not the best word, but you're not really to serve as a judge or a um, arbiter of fact or law. And I, I didn't understand that. You know, I think um, people in my generation, the majority of cases resolve at mediation. So kind of we view that as the, the trial almost. And so kind of we're sitting there strategizing who's going to be our mediator. We're like we want that guy to go in and really tell the other side that their case is no good and that they're going to lose. And But that's not really what you do as a mediator. No, no. And, in fact, in the opening of every mediation, I tell them I'm not a judge. I'm not here to make decisions. I don't have that power. I don't want that responsibility. I'm here to help so you can make good decisions for yourself about your case. And if both sides can do that and listen to each other and see things from the other side's perspective, most of the time you're going to be able to work out your own agreement. Well, that is is certainly good advice for going into mediations. And it really changed the way becoming a mediator kind of changed the way I go about uh, preparing for them. And, you know, certainly have lost that that trial mentality of a mediation because it's just not productive to getting something resolved. Um, And I think it's it's a good way to to negotiate. But uh, we're ready to take our final break of the day. And then I want to talk to you about a unique experience that that most attorneys don't get to go through but i want to pick your brain a little bit about it all right so in in law school i went to a seminar about jury selection and the one of the themes that the that the presenter said was you know, this is interesting for you to um, – I want you guys to learn this and think about this from the juror's perspective because most of you are going to become lawyers and you'll never be uh, selected to a jury. Um, so this, But you need to try to empathize with them and, and think about your audience. Well, Ashley has, has made it to the jury pool, and I want to talk to you a little bit about what it's like because I know we spend a lot of time as attorneys – talking about what juries are going to do and we go to mediations and they say we say you better set, set you better settle because i'm going to convince the jury of that my client's case is correct and, and then we worry about well what are, what are the jurors going to think and what are they going to talk about and uh you know sometimes we try our cases and the jury makes a verdict and one of the first things everybody does is is tracks the jurors down as they're leaving and kind of ask them about what they thought and what's always interested me whenever i've i, I like to give them their their space but every once in a while i've done it or sometimes i've i've ran into them at the grocery store a day or two after and you always want to hear their perspective and kind of more times than not it's 
nothing of what they took away from the trial is not what you prepared. It's not the message you were trying to convey. A lot of times it's not the message the other side was trying to convey. So I want to talk with you in the final segment about your experience as a juror. Uh, it was interesting because I had the same training as you. I mean, I went to law school and you know, taught about jury selection. I've, I've tried jury cases and I've selected juries. And uh, to come in as a juror, it gives you a different perspective. Uh, and then to be in the jury room doing deliberations and hearing what all the other jurors uh, saw and heard and how they think about the case. It, it was a unique experience. I'm glad I got to do it. So I was at the trial where, where you served. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, first when, when the, when the jury comes back, what, what we see from the uh, attorney's perspective is the first thing you're looking at is who's going to be the foreman, because sometimes you have your list of, all right, I think that juror is on my, my side. You've got the juror that you think's frowning at you the whole time or the juror that you think's smirking. And they might be just daydreaming. You never know. But you kind of have you, you, your ones you feel like, oh, that guy is really agreeing. He seems to nod his head when I'm speaking. He, 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 he must be on my side. So you, so you want to know who's the, who's the, the foreman. So in the, the trial so that, you, you know, that we were involved with, you were the foreman. And so what was that? Was that a pretty easy process where they were like, well, this guy's the attorney. We, we're, we're going with him. I didn't ask to be the foreman. We went in the back and the first question is, um, you know, who's select your foreman. And I think everyone assumed I was the foreman because I was an attorney. And the reason they knew that is because during the jury selection process, they questioned the jurors. And if you haven't served on a jury, they can ask almost anything, and there were a lot of questions about my work experience because I was an attorney, what types of cases I uh, work on, being a mediator, the attorneys I've worked with in the past. Um, so they knew a lot about me going in the back room, uh, and I, I was nominated, and I told them I would do it if they wanted me to. So it's not like an election where where – or at least what you experience, where multiple people are stating their case why they'd like to be the foreman, and then the everybody votes. It wasn't my experience. And now, in most juries that don't have an attorney in the box, that could be. I don't know how they would do it. I think every jury is probably unique in that manner, you, how they select the, the foreman. In my case, it was assumed that I was going to do that role. Uh, I don't think there was a vote even. And they just asked me if I would, and I agreed. So when you become the foreman, are you in charge of the deliberation from that point, or do you kind of – is it like being a mediator where you're steering the discussion? It was in my in my case. And, I, again, I don't know if it's because of my training and my experience. It just happened that way, uh, if that kicked in or if that's the way it would work in most juries. I would like to be a fly on the wall in another jury where I'm not involved. And there's not an attorney involved just to see that process and compare it because all I have is the experience that I had. Now, when you're the mediator, do they say, well, all right, a, a lawyer no, – I'm sorry, I said mediator. When you're, when you're the, the, a, a lawyer juror, were the other jurors looking to you and saying, all right, well, well this lawyer said this and the other one said that. What's, what's the law on this? Or are, they, or are they looking at it more like, well, what, what, what should we do? Or good thing is we had a very good judge on the – on the case who gave very clear instructions and sent us back with very clear questions that we had to, to answer, which made my job very easy as the foreman. So all I had to do was kind of read what the judge had given us. We answered the questions and, and fortunately the attorneys involved in the case were, were very well prepared. Um, and they had excellent experts. The experts in the case really drove that case and now, what happened. That was Hector, wasn't it? I think, or at least I remember the the one Hector Ingham. He, he's outstanding w witness. Yes. Um, was there anything in the deliberations that stuck out that stuck out to you? Like, what does this have to do with anything that were important to anyone? There were a couple of questions that were pretty off the wall and obscure. Um, I think you know, there's twelve twelve jurors, and I think eight of us were kind of on the same page to begin with, and there was a few outliers. Um, who had some different views, but it comes down to a lot of times who the, um, I guess the more powerful personalities are in the room. Well, that's what a, you know, a lawyer that we've worked with in the past that's, that's, um, kind of talked about jury selection and he would always tell me, you know, you gotta, there's chiefs and Indians on a jury. And so you gotta be careful with your chiefs because they, the, you know, a lot of times it's just a, a power of force. You know, some people aren't going to, camp out for two or three days if they don't get their way in a deliberation. So it's the, the more forceful ones that aren't willing to budge or the ones you gotta, you got to hope are on your side. 
Right. And and some people just aren't comfortable in that setting. You come into a room of 12 strangers because even though you're sitting on a jury with these people, you're not talking to them. You're not having any conversation really with them. Uh, maybe on a break when the judge is sending us out of the room so the attorneys can talk, you'll have a few seconds to you know make a few comments to each other, but you're not talking about the case. Um, so you don't really know who you're dealing with until you get in there to deliberate. And then once you get in the jury room to deliberate, the personalities really come forward. And so a lot of times, so the, you know, the role of a jury in a, in a trial, in a trial setting is to determine the facts and the judge gives you the law. And so, um, but what we perceive as fact can be kind of dictated by our outcome or our experiences and, and our beliefs and opinions. Um, did, did you have in, in that particular setting, I know you said eight were pretty much on the same page. So, were the, were the four on an opposite side, or were there four? I guess I'm asking it a poor way, but were the were the four people that weren't on page with the eight? Did they all have a different mindset altogether, or were they split up amongst the four? Yeah, it wasn't unified. They had different concerns. Each of them had, based on their prior experiences, it was a condemnation case with the state taking property and what was the value of that property. And I think each of them had their own concerns from their own experiences. It was not a unified eight against four and trying to convince the four, it was really the eight kind of were listening to the expert. And then in their conversation, the four migrated to their opinion. So did, in that situation, do you put on your, your mediator hat and say, like, let's let, let's try to see if we can find common ground between the eight and the four? I guess so, a little bit. I don't know how to take off my mediator hat sometimes. Um, I use it at home even with my daughters. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a good uh, it's cer- certainly a good tool set to have, and and I think you know just the, the perspective it gives you is uh, is very valuable, and it's you know as far especially from the way negotiations go, you probably get to see what's effective and and what's not effective. I've gotten to see over twenty two years a lot of things that are not effective, and I've tried to avoid those in my practice. <laughs> well, that's yeah, we always want to avoid what's not effective. So, Ashley, I really appreciate you sharing your time with us, and uh, definitely learned a lot today. Uh, could you tell everybody again where where they can find you? Uh, sure, um, we're local here in Wilmington. Uh, the firm is the Workers' Compensation Law Firm, and um, thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. It's good catching up with you. Yep, thanks.